on false teachers, uh, keep the gospel pure. But at the same time, he's, he's lifting up what a genuine faith looks like. He says that we, that we are to live out our faith, uh, that love issuing from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. That, uh, that's what our, the, the, the aim of our charge is. And it's in contrast to those false uh, believe, false uh, teachers. I'll just do a brief, brief uh, recap of last week. Uh, we covered that an elder, an overseer, or pastor are, are three different terms for the same role. And we, we stepped through a couple, a couple different passages of Scripture showing that, how, how they will change. They'll be talking about uh, elder, and all of a sudden they're talking about, they're saying uh, overseer, uh, because it's the same thing in Scripture. And then we saw that as far as, the, as what does a pastor do, uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 summarized it really well, and I'm just going to paraphrase it. He says that, that we're, uh, he exhorted the elders, Paul exhorted the elder, elders to shepherd the flock of God and do so by exercising oversight, right? So your role as elder, as this mature, older uh, man, uh, that, as your role of elder, shepherd the flock, watch over the flock, care for the flock, Feed the flock on the word of God, protect it against false doctrines, uh, care for the spiritual health of, of, the, of the, the members, and then do so by exercising the oversight that God has delegated to the elders. And then we talked about our, the response of the congregation under the leadership of the elders, and, and, and scripture calls us to, be, to respect, to trust, and submit to our elders, our pastors, and to do our best to maintain the unity and make our, the pastor's job a joy, right? Because scripture says that, that it's up to you, that you can make the pastor's job a joy or a burden. Uh, and, 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 and there's no benefit to you making the pastor's job a burden, scripture says. And so, we're, uh, I wasn't ready, that wasn't funny. I don't know why. <laughs> Didn't think that was funny. A lot of people need my train of thought. Um, so we are, we are called to submit to the pastors as long as, in turn, they're submitting to Christ, right? That's the stipulation. The, the pastors only have authority that's been delegated to them, right? Uh, if Scripture doesn't say it, I don't have authority. If I'm saying something that doesn't line up with Scripture, then, it, it, then don't you follow Scripture. Scripture has the highest authority. Um, pastor does not. We must also submit to Christ and to Scripture. Um, and so three, three things that you need to be careful is, is the pastor's character. Is the, is the pastor's character not, no longer in line with Scripture? That's a, if so, then that'd be a time that you need to stop submitting. Uh, if, it's, uh, if they're trying to wield authority and power that's not been delegated in Scripture, that would be a time that, okay, I can't submit. Um, or, or if the pastor begins to preach something that's not in line with Scripture. Any of those reasons, that's, that's when you get, grab a couple other people and you can, in, in love, uh, confront, that, confront that person to hopefully bring him back. 
And so we, we covered last week that also with the greater influence you have, the greater damage done when you sin, right? So that's why it's so important to have godly men in, in spiritual leadership because a lot of damage can be done with, uh, with the authority and, and, the, and the influence that they wield. So knowing that, knowing that a pastor is wielding this authority and, and this influence that's been delegated by God, and it can do great damage if they're unfit for the role, then it is vitally important as we begin this next section in, in, um, in 1 Timothy 3 on what the qualifications are to get it right the first time, to not in, in, install someone as pastor that's not ready, right? We got to take these qualifications seriously. That's why we, we, we stopped and did that topical last week so that when we read the, the qualifications of an elder, we understood the gravity of the situation. It's something to take serious. We don't want to install someone as an elder that's not ready. Having the proper people in place for both the elders and the deacons is going to maintain the order, the unity of the church, um, and it's going to show the world that something's, something's different in here than there is out there. And it's going to highlight the genuineness of our faith compared to that of the false teachers. All right, so let's, let's actually dig in then to 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to read verse 1 through 7 this morning. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? He must be, not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must do, be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snares of the devil. So let's pray before we continue this morning. Lord my God, I pray that you meet with us this morning. That as we draw near to you, you would draw near to us. We desire, you know, the reason why we come this morning, Lord, is to lift your name up, to worship you, but also to hear from you. And Lord, as, I, as I, uh, we walk through this passage together, I pray, Lord, that none of these words are my words, that they're your words, that your spirit is guiding this, um, and that the words will go forth and do a work in your people uh, to change hearts and minds and lives, Lord. That you be, I know that you've already, you are always working here at Emmanuel. We've seen you do great things in the past, and I'm excited that you would continue to do so this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So right off the bat, I'm going to say, I'm afraid I'm going to ruffle some feathers this morning. Uh, I was excited. I'm really excited about this passage, but also nervous because I don't want to ruffle feathers. I, I love the unity that we have in this church, um, and I, I would never want to do anything to damage that. And so as we, as we go down through this, I'm going to give you what Pastor and Josh's view on these passages are. And if you came to a different conclusion, and at the end of the service, you still are not convinced I would say we, we can have unity. It's not something that we need to split over or, or have any uh, ill will towards each other over. We can have unity and, and maybe have some friendly discussions later on. Um, but just know that going in, that my heart is that we would maintain unity at all costs here at Emmanuel. So the first thing, which I hope is not controversial, is that only men are eligible to be pastor, right? Hopefully here at Emmanuel that's not a controversial statement. I know it's getting more and more controversial in the world today, um, 
But we kind of already covered that in pa- when Pastor Josh covered 1 Timothy 2.12. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And those, that's the two main roles of a pastor is to teach and have authority, right? That's the two main things that the pastor does. And so the, the role of pastor has been uh, given to the, the men. Uh, and Pastor Josh covered that, that, that Paul... Um, Paul uh, rooted that argument in the creation order, that Adam was created first. Um, even the word elder itself, presbyteros, means, uh, in Greek, a mature man having seasoned judgment. It, it's never been applied to a woman in Scripture. Elder means an older man, a mature man. Um, and so that, the word itself says it's, it's a man. Uh, not to mention that the, the very first qualification we'll get into is that a husband of one wife, right? The husband. Uh, we're not gender fluid here. There's two Two genders, and it's the husband of one wife is the pastor. Um, so like I said, I don't want to spend too much time here. Um, but I do want to say, like, make, remind you that that, that does not mean, make the woman any less. Both uh, man and women were made in the image of God. We bear God's image and are equally valuable to God. Um, and, and I was just thinking about that. Like, uh, I have eight kids. And when I leave, and I, 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 you know, Angel and I go out on a date or whatever, we leave Reese in charge, right? Our, our oldest. We leave Reese in charge, but that by no means uh, that we somehow value him more, that we love him more because he has this role of authority over his, the other siblings. It just means he was born first, and as such, he, he has this extra responsibility that we, that we occasionally put on him. It's so... I want to make that clear off the bat, that just because you have those responsibilities does not mean anything to do with the value. God doesn't value one more or less because of the role that he has given us. So with that being said, I'm going to move on, because I think Pastor Josh covered that amazingly in two sermons ago. But as we go down through here, what we are going to see is is, um, character traits. And I believe that these character traits, uh, that they're, they're, they are the, quali- the, uh, the qualifications of a pastor, but I believe these character traits are, are for both of us this morning, both men and women. Um, because not, I don't think that just the pastor needs to be self-controlled, right? Do, do you, everyone else get off, off the, you know, you guys get a free pass to be uh, impulsive and not self-controlled? I mean, what about sober mind, you know, be, to, be, to be not drunk, right? Does the pastor need to be the only one that shows up sober? Everyone else can show up plastered? No, like as you read down through here, you're going to see that all of these qualifications also apply to every man and woman in the church. Uh, it's just that the, as, as, uh, as Paul's going down through here, what he's doing is he's painting a picture of a mature believer. And, and, that, and that is what a pastor should be. He should be farther along in his walk that he can, like Paul, turn around and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Right. Uh, and that's what he's doing. He's painting for us a, a picture of a mature believer. So I don't, the reason why I say that is I don't want you to turn, tune out this morning and say, well, this passage isn't for me. There's nothing here for me. It's all the qualifications of a pastor. I'm not going to be a pastor. So I'm going to just tune out and, and turn my ears off. I don't want you to do that this morning. Uh, as we go down through here, we're, we're painting the picture of a mature believer. And so you can, with each one of these, you can ask yourself, how am I doing with this? Right? This is what a mature believer looks like. This is our goal. This is the thing we're shooting for. How am I doing? Uh, so I just want to make sure that, that you don't tune out this morning. Stay tuned in. And so starting in verse 1, he says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
And, and you got two words there, aspire and desire. Desire is the inward, the inward desire, right? He, he longs for it. And aspire means he's, he's actually doing something about it. He's making it, verbalize it. He's, he is trying to attain it somehow. And, and, and so Paul says, if, they, if, they, if you come across someone doing this, he's aspiring to a noble task. And I thought that was a weird thing to start with. And I think that he needed to say it for two reasons. The first is that he spent like a good portion of chapter one telling him how, how to fight against false teachers and false doctrines, right? So I think someone in that situation who has to go to war against people that have been given authority, given the, an opportunity to speak and are abusing it for, for personal gain, I think very quickly you could get jaded by that and see anyone who, who, who's like, hey, I would like to be an elder and see him as a threat and immediately shut that down. Like, and so Paul's like, no, 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 don't do that. If someone comes and they're aspiring to be an elder, that's a noble task. That's a good, a good desire that they have. Uh, so don't just shut them down. Don't see that as a threat. But also, the second thing is that Paul's making it clear that just having the desire to be an elder does not make you qualified to be an elder. Right? That's, that's going to be the whole point of this passage. It's good to have that desire, but maturity is needed first. A lot of damage can be done if you put someone who is gifted, maybe they're an exceptionally gifted speaker, but they, are, they have an immaturity there, and you put them into to the pulpit too early. A lot of damage for themselves and for the flock can be done. So Paul's going to go into these qualifications here, and he says there in first, uh, the second verse, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Must be. Not an option here. Must be. It's an imperative that they must be above reproach. So what is above reproach? It means that you don't have any valid uh, accusations that can be made against you. And I say, why I put it that way is Jesus had all kinds of accusations made against him, but none of them were valid, right? Um, which is why, I, uh, you know, because people are going to make baseless accusations. The world's going to do that. But 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul knows that baseless claims are going to be made against you as an elder. And don't believe them unless there's enough evidence. Right? So being above reproach. No valid accusation can be made against you. And, and this is a really broad term. Right? And I think, I think that being above reproach is like the main point of the passage. And then from here on out, he's giving specific examples of what it looks like to be above reproach. Um, this is like a big, a big picture term. And then he's like, that's kind of nebulous. So I'm going to give you examples of what that meat looks like when someone is above reproach. And so we're going to get into these, these uh, character traits, if you would. Um, but before we do, I want to I read 1 Timothy 6.3, which gives you an, a, a, the character traits of the false teachers. Because I, I kind of I want to keep that in your mind as we go down through here, just to, to, to see the character traits of the false, a false teacher versus the character traits of a, someone who is ready to be a, a pastor. And so 1 Timothy 6.3 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and, the te and, and teaching that accords with the godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversies and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who, are, who have depraved in mind and depraved in the, of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so I, I, we see three character traits here. One is puffed up with conceit. He's prideful. And, this, and the second is that longs for controversy and quarrels, likes to argue, right? Likes to argue, likes a good uh, quarrel. 
not happy unless there's some kind of friction going on. And then finally, that we see that they, but ultimately, it's a means of gain, whether it's monetary gain, influence gain, like they see, uh, they see it as a means of, of gain. So their heart is not in the right place in doing it. So that's what a false teacher looks like. So now we're going to look at what, what, a, a, what someone that's ready to become a pastor would look like. And I, I, I don't believe this list to be exhaustive. I think it's kind of a minimum, because that's what Paul, Paul thought was important enough to write down, to hands down, it's a minimum. But I don't necessarily think it's, a, it's an exhaustive list here. I think you could, you could add maybe the, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, um, things like that to it. Uh, so as we go down through here, I think you can kind of categorize these things into three categories. First is, the, uh, is a series of necessary character traits. Then we get one necessary skill. And then three different places that we look for your resume. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to walk down through these. And so the very first one, the husband of one wife. And there, uh, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And as I, I, I really thought about this and I, I, I try to work this out, I've come to the conclusion I don't really think this is about a piece of paper that says you're married. Right? And the reason why I say that is because with, with Jesus, the heart always matters. Always. Um, I know a Christian couple who are currently not divorced. At least they have a piece of paper that says they're married. But they can hardly stand to be in the same room together because that's how much they don't like each other. Because they're both Christians and they don't believe in divorce, so they're stuck with each other. If Jesus says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, that you've committed adultery, I think Jesus would look at that marriage and say you're divorced. Right? It's not about a piece of paper that the government has signed saying you're married. It's, it's whether you are actually um, living in light of the gospel, living out, you know, like the uh, husband loving the wife as Christ loved the church, you know, uh, actually married. And so with that in mind, we're going to get into the, the words here, because I, I think the, uh, the interest, as I, as I was studying this out, I found it was interesting that Greek actually doesn't have a word for husband or wife. It just has a word for a, a man and woman. And context of the, of the sentence tells you whether it's talking about a husband or wife. And I bring that up because I think it has bearing on how you interpret the passage. If you just do a word-for-word translation there, it's three words. One woman, man, is what this, the passage says. And it's an odd statement. It's not really found anywhere else in, in, in Scripture. So it's hard to like compare it to kind of see, get some uh, better understanding. So the, 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 the closest we have is a very similar statement that was given uh, to women uh, in 1 Timothy 5.9. In 1 Timothy 5.9, Paul says, Let a widow be enrolled, and this is talking about the church taking care of widows, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. That Greek there is the same, it says, except it's switched. Instead of saying one, uh, a one-woman man, it says a one-man woman. Right, so it's the same exact phrase, just the, 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 they're, they're switched. And so, the reason why I bring that up is, 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 what about remarriage? If someone remarries, are they immediately uh, disqualified from the pulpit? That's that's the question at hand. That's what I'm trying. That's why I'm, I'm looking at these words like this. And with with, with the the passage talking about widows. Paul, to, uh, just a few verses later in 1 Timothy 5.14 says, I would have a younger widow remarry. Bear children, manage their households, give, give the adversary no occasion for slander. So he, he's saying that a younger widow should remarry. 
So what happens if the younger Mary, widow remarries and then her husband passes away again? Is she, no, is she barred from ever being supported by the church because she's remarried? Uh, no, nobody would say, would say that. Uh, and so the, the same thing applies, I think, to, to the pastorate. If the, if, the, if the husband, if the pastor has a wife that dies and he remarries, it doesn't bar you from being a pastor. It's not, it's not about having only been married to one person ever, is what I'm getting at. Um, this is what this, I think this passage is really getting at, because Jesus cares about the heart here. The heart is that God is calling us to, be, um, to have sexual purity, to be, have fidelity, to be, to be solely our, our wives, belonging to our wife. Um, which makes this about our character rather than a piece of paper. Um, and, so, and so if you take it that way, you can also then apply this passage to even a non, an, uh, a, a, uh, an unmarried man, right? So if you're unmarried, are you keeping yourself sexually pure? So rather than saying, to, uh, saying are you solely devoted to your wife and, and keeping yourself sexually pure, and, 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 and you would say, are you solely devoted to the Lord and keeping yourself sexually pure? Um, so I think that the character quality can still be applied even to an unmarried man. And also that, that brings up the point that I believe that an unmarried man could be a pastor. Um, otherwise, if you had a pastor that, you know, like I, I grew up with a pastor that her, uh, his wife did pass away, that doesn't mean, you know, now that he's not married, doesn't mean he's suddenly not uh, able to be a pastor anymore. Um, and I even think that this goes as far as to say that a divorced man could be a pastor. You know, now this is, this is where a lot, you have to take it case by case and do a lot of figuring out what happened there and how long ago and maybe because maybe the divorce happened before he was even a Christian, you know, or maybe he was a brand new Christian and now and then there's been many, many years of maturity and then he realizes that that was a mistake and, but he can't change the past, um, things like that. I think it would be a case-by-case situation, but I don't think divorce necessarily means that you are barred from ever being a pastor. And so I think that this also applies to all of us this morning, though. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 7.4 says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so this is not something that's just for pastors, this fidelity, this sexual, sexual purity. It's, it's for every believer. And so this morning, how are you doing with that? Are you, are you caught up in any type of sexual sin, pornography, or anything like that? Are you, are you pursuing your, your, your spouse? You know, or, or are you like that couple I mentioned that are just living in the same house together, calling yourself married, but you're divorced in heart, right? No, don't do that. Pursue, pursue your spouse. Make sure that uh, you, are, you are solely your, your spouses. The next character, character trait is to be sober-minded. And so the sober-minded, that word there in the Greek can, can, can have a literal sense or a figurative sense. Literally, it means not intoxicated, negative, uh, free from negative influences. But figurative, figuratively, it could mean clear-minded, circumspect, you know, like clear-headed and focused. And so I think that this is, think, is talking more figuratively because there is a, another character trait that you're not a drunkard, Right? So, so he, that's kind of covered. So I think that this here is talking more figuratively, that you're watchful, you're vigilant, you're clear-headed, you're focused on the kingdom of God, mindset on things above, living life in light of eternity. 
And that is what we need out of a pastor. We need the pastor to lead the charge in a spiritual war, and he cannot get distracted. Um, once again, this applies to all of us. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You're in a spiritual war. And the enemy would like you to forget that. But, he's, but, but we're called to be watchful, sober-minded, alert. And we're living in an age of constant distractions. Constant distractions. Um, I mean, the, the phone is the internet in your pocket. It's a box with a thousand distractions on it. million distractions on it. It's ridiculous. And we carry it around with us at all times. At the slightest bit of boredom, and we're just... Or a slice bit of stress, you know. I'm surprised we don't have neck issues from looking down all the time. It's, it's bad. And I feel like, you know, we're, we're in Greek mythology, they had the, loc- the land of the locust eaters. And I feel like that's what we're becoming. We're living in the land of the locust eaters. And if you don't know what that is, it's um, these people lived on an island, island dominated by the lotus tree. And the lotus fruit and uh, flowers had a narcotic that, uh, that causing the inhabitants, of, inhabitants to fall into a sleep. You know, they, they were just peacefully apathetic. And I just feel like that's where we are as a culture. It's hard to care about anything because we're constantly distracted. And I think Satan likes it that way. We're, you know, our drug of choice is dopamine. Like, so, you know, like this is, you know, like a lot of people would read sober-minded and they think of alcohol. But I think the, the, the number one um, way that we're intoxicated here in the United States is the dopamine hit that we get from the Internet. Constantly surfing the Internet. So we need to be fighting to be sober-minded constantly fighting the distractions of this world because our marriage needs you. Your marriage needs you. Your marriage needs you. It's not going to be a healthy marriage all by itself. It's going to take work and cultivating. You know, maybe it's your kids. Your kids need you. They need you to lead. They need you to, be, to, to lead them in the, in the word of God, to be examples to them, to, to, to be involved in their life and to be having hard, hard conversations with them. Um, you know, like, in this day and age, like with navigating the views of this world and putting that in light of Scripture, uh, navigating the Internet and pornography, I mean, it, our kids need us. We can't be distracted. Maybe it's our neighbor. It's our coworker that needs us. They're going to hell, and we're too distracted to have the conversations with them that could lead them to Christ. We must be sober-minded. The pastor leads the charge in this, but every one of us needs to be sober-minded, alert, awake. The next character trait is self-controlled. Self-control is being disciplined, having control over your emotions. A pastor cannot be controlled by his emotions. Um, scripture calls us to be slow to speak and, uh, and quick to listen. But you can't be like that if you're constantly uh, reflexively responding out of our emotions. Um, and I think there's two kinds of, being, of self-control. One is having the control over yourself not to do something that you shouldn't do. Right? Holding yourself back. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Em- uh, emotion is not sin. Emotions is not sin. But what you choose to do next because of those emotions might be sin. And so we can't let a spirit of jealousy or or a wounded pride 
or anger of how a situation went down calls us to act in a way that is ungodly. The second thing, way that, that we have self-control is having control over yourself to make you do something that you should do, right? So the one is keeping yourself from doing something you shouldn't do. The other one is doing, having the ability to make yourself do what you should. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says, do, not, do you not know that in a race all runners run? I love this passage. I love this passage. But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control. There it is, self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He goes, if an athlete can work really hard, lifting weights, uh, eating healthy, in order to go run this race for something that's going to perish, it's not lasting, how much more should we be willing to put the hard work and effort into something that will be eternal? We cannot lose this reward. And so in verse 20, he continues and says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's like, I'm not having it. I'm, I will be self-disciplined. And then Paul later says in, in, in 1 Timothy 4, 7, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves. For godliness. Train yourselves. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. We need to be self-disciplined to be in prayer for one another, to be reading our, 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 the Bible, to be living uh, according, in line with scripture, listening to the Spirit's prompting, being obedient to what he's calling us to do. And this is what we want from a pastor. He needs to be leading the charge in this. Someone who demonstrates self-control, keeping himself from sin, and then having the follow-through to do the things he knows he should. But these apply to us. How is your self-control this morning? Are you, are you in sin? Are you in things that, are, 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 that you shouldn't be? How are you responding to the stressful situations in your life? Are you having emotional outbursts? Are you in Scripture daily, reading the Word of God and growing? The next character trait is respectable. Webster's definition of that is worthy of respect, decent or correct in character. And this is what we've been talking about all along, is that a qualified pastor is one that's a mature believer. He's worth following Follow me as I follow Christ, you should be able to say. And this kind of man is worthy of respect. A pastor's character should speak volumes about who he is and what he believes. It should speak volumes to the watching world. As, as they, even if they disagree with, with what you have to say, they should still respect your morals and your commitment to, to live out what you preach. And, but that still applies to us. Are you respected by, in your family as someone that's a man of your word, that does what he says he's going to do? Carrying out the same morals that you expect from your children. What about at work? Are you respected by your coworkers? Do you work hard? 
Do you have a, a good work ethic? Do people depend on you and, and, and see you as respectable? What about your friends? Can your friends depend on you? Are you reliable? Are you uh, confident they could trust you to, to, to share with you and you're not going to uh, share their, their, their secrets or whatever it may be? Are, are, do you have their respect? This is what a mature believer looks like, something that we should all be striving for. The next character trait is hospitable. This one makes me a little nervous. Because like, I always think of this one as, as inviting people into your house. Uh, luckily, I looked at the Greek, and that's not what it says. <laughs> it says generous. The Greek, well, actually, uh, the Greek says uh, the definition is loving strangers. And then the Oxford, Oxford definition says generous and friendly to visitors. Uh, so do you, like, do, you, do you have room in your life for new people? Are you, are you genuinely care about uh, new people, strangers? This, this is important for a pastor. A pastor can't be forming a clique. He can't be creating his little club and not inviting more members, right? It, the, our, our door is open. We want to grow the flock of God here. We want to grow his kingdom here at Emmanuel. We cannot be a clique. We must have room for new people. So is, the, is, this, is this person that desires to be a pastor, is he welcoming and inviting to people, invites them into his life? Because how is the flock to grow if new sheep aren't welcome? How, how are we to lead anyone to Christ if we don't care about them? I believe that we are. I'm excited as, as a church. I'm excited that we, that we are. I, th I think we're pretty inviting to, to, to new people as they come in. Um, I'm always excited when God brings us new people. But I think as you grow, it gets harder and harder. Because everyone has so many close relationships that they can have. And, and you know, depending on your personality, some people only need a few close relationships. Other people can handle a lot of, of close relationships. And so we only have so many like available slots in our life, if you would, to have those close relationships. But I don't necessarily think this is calling to say that, that, that every person in this room has to be, have a really close relationship with every single other person in this room, but that we just have a genuine care for everyone in this room. You know, even if I don't get to spend a lot of time with you and we're, we're not, you know, you know, spending day after day together, I care, though. I, I'm praying over you. Right? And that's, we should all have that for one another. We're praying for one another, lifting each other up in prayer. Uh, and that, and, you know, that's what I, I always remind you as, as you're reading your Abide journal or whatever, you, even if you're not doing the Abide journal and you're just reading scripture, your daily scripture reading, be praying for one another, your family here at Emmanuel. But I think it gets harder and harder as we, get, as we grow. And so we got to fight to continually be very friendly and welcoming to the new people. So the next one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over one, able to teach for now, and come back to that, because that's the, the skill that I mentioned that you have to have. So I'm, I'm trying to get all the character traits. So we're going to move on to not a drunkard. And so I don't believe that this is a prohibition against all alcoholic drinks, but only getting drunk. And here's, here's the reason why. And this is where you might, you might have a different view, and that is absolutely fine. But uh, the reverse reason is that it doesn't say do not drink wine. It doesn't say do not drink an alcoholic beverage. I think scripture calls that strong drink elsewhere. You know, like, it doesn't say that. It says do not be drunk. It had the opportunity to say it, and, it, and, and the scripture chose not to. And I don't think we should add, go beyond what scripture says, and add a rule on top of it. Um, 
Even Ephesians 5.18 says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, so do not get drunk with wine. It could have just said, do not drink wine. And then we would be, have a very clear mandate from Scripture. But it didn't. I, 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 I'd be hard-pressed for anyone to show me where it says that. Um, that's the first reason. The second reason is that Jesus drank alcoholic wine. At least that's what it appears to be in Matthew 11, 18, where it says, For John came neither eating or drinking. So he came and he, was, he, he lived out in the wilderness and, 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 you know, and ate uh, locusts and honey, right? He was a weird guy. So he didn't eat and drink what most people ate and drank. And so what did they say about him? It says that he has a demon. That's what people said about him. He is a demon. He's weird. John's weird. He doesn't eat or drink normal stuff, and he's weird, and he's a, he's a demon. But then it says in verse 19 that the Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. They can say that because he's eating food that a glutton would eat, and he's drinking a drink that a drunkard would drink. He's a, that's why they're able to make that claim. Not that it was a, a valid claim. That's where we talk about accusations were made against Jesus, even if they weren't valid. But they were able to make the claim. Paul encourages even Timothy to drink wine. In 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and, for, and your frequent ailments. So I don't think scripture has a prohibition against all alcoholic beverages. But what I want to say at this point is my goal in this saying this is not to go tell you, go, 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 go get, you know, drink some you know, alcohol. That's not at all what I'm trying to say here. All I'm saying is that scripture does not prohibit a man who drinks moder- in moderation from being a pastor, according to the, the, these scriptures. Um, that's all I'm saying. Because it is important that you listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting on your life about what you should and shouldn't do in all things, not just wine. Uh, Paul said, tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. But basically, Paul's saying anything has the ability to become uh, addictive and, and have control over you, and I will not let anything dominate me, whatever it may be, whether it be... Sugar, whether it be alcohol, whether it be video games in my case, God convicted me of video games and said, you can't handle it. I could not play video games in moderation. And so I had to cut it out of my life. You know, so it might be whatever for you. It could be many different things. But I'm definitely not telling you to go drink wine today. All I'm saying is that a pastor that drinks moderately is, is okay. And so, the, so this, but this applies to us. Are you free from addiction this morning? As the pastor should be. Are you free from addiction? Are you solely God's? Or does something else have a hold in your life that's dominating your life? The next thing is not quarrelsome, but gentle. I mean, not violent, but gentle. And I think it kind of goes with the not quarrelsome. They kind of go together in, in, my, in my mind. Not violent. And that violent is, is, is like kind of given to blows. Like, like, like ready for a fight. But not violent, but gentle. A pastor must be someone who responds to difficult situations without anger, without violence, and and, and calm, um, gentle, gracious, uh, and not holding grudges. That's the the way the pastor needs to be able to respond in difficult situations. And and, and he can't be quarrelsome. He's got to be a peacemaker. The scripture calls us to be peacemakers. We should be striving at all costs to preserve the unity. That's our goal, is to preserve the unity we have as believers. Reluctant to fight. This is what we want from a pastor. Someone who fights for unity. Fights for the good of the whole rather than himself. 
It's all about how we're interacting with others. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.1 that this is for everybody, this mandate. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the, of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. There's that gentleness, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So how are you interacting with others? How are you dealing with that difficult coworker or, or difficult clients? Are you gentle or are you quarrelsome? What about your children when they're acting up? How do you handle them? Are you gentle and kind? And, and in, in the church, how are you doing at maintaining the unity of the believers here? We need to fight for unity. We try to respond in a loving, gracious manner. And the last character trait is not a lover of money. With Jesus, motivation matters. It matters. It, it, it can take something that's not a sin and, and it becomes a sin for you because your heart is in the wrong place. Or you could be doing the right thing, but God's not pleased with you because you're doing it for the wrong reason. The motive matters. God, your heart before God matters. And the motivation of a pastor cannot be monetary gain. It just can't. It's not going to go well for him. You know, because every... every person that walks out, uh, you know, that, that loss of, of the congregation is a loss of financial gain. You know, like, like the numbers of the people sitting in the pew becomes a number of math, like, uh, you know, like that financial gain. We'll, we'll, and we'll begin to do anything they can to keep people in the pew. It's just, it's not healthy. The person that has a love of money, it shows that their mind is set on the things of the earth. And this is one of the character traits that we read about of the false teachers. Right, that they, they were in it for their own personal gain. Our motivation must be our love of God and desire to serve him and our love of people and to see them saved by God. Right? Love God, love others. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for, we, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money is not evil. So we're not saying that. We're not saying this morning that money is evil. We're saying that money is the root of all kinds of evil, that it can lead to all kinds of evil. And what's crazy is that it says that they pierced themselves with pain because of their love of money. They pierced themselves. Sometimes we are experiencing pain that we brought on ourselves due to our own passions for the wrong things. So motivation matters. And what's your underlying motivation this morning? Why do you do what you do? Is it to please God? Is it to build his kingdom up here? Maybe in one day here, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Or are you self-seeking and building your own kingdom here? So those are the character traits. So let's move on now to the, the skill that's required. That it lists one skill, and that's able to teach. And so I used to see this, when I would read this, I used to, to, to see this as the ability to public speak. Like, how eloquent are you? Are, are you funny and witty? Can you tell an interesting uh, story that, that kind of draws people in and keeps people entertained? Can you entertain a crowd for an hour? You know, that, that initially that's what I, I read that, and that's what I believed it, it, it meant. But I no longer believe that. And, and, I, and there's two reasons for that. 
First is if, it was, if, if this was a simply being good at public speaking, why list it at all? That is a skill that can be acquired over time, right? You can take a communications class at a local college and learn a lot about public speaking. Or you can just learn it on the job and just as you do it, you're going to get better. It, that's just, it's just a skill that can be acquired. So I don't know why you would list it as a requirement. Second reason is that you can be a very entertaining, eloquent speaker you know, really good at public speaking, and no one listens. No one's changed by what you say. So while you, while, you know, so if we call someone in and, and, and let him speak, for us, not knowing him, maybe we're like, wow, he's a really good speaker. But if you were to go back from wherever he's from and, and talk to the people he, he teaches on a regular basis, You'll, might, you might find out that no one grows. No one's changed by what this person says. And that can be, happen for many different reasons. Maybe, maybe they've lost trust in that person. They doubt his motives. And so they, they don't want to really hear what he has to say, right? Maybe he has a judgmental spirit and they feel judged by him and, and, and they shut down. Whatever it is, just being good at speaking out loud doesn't mean that the person that's listening is being changed. And so what I think this is getting at here People are being changed through you. People are growing. People know God better because of you. That's what I think this means. Because that's not something that can be learned. You can't go to college and learn how to change a heart. God's using you, and we see that, and therefore we, we, we're going to allow you to, to speak uh, at the church. So this is more about how powerful of an impact are you having in people's lives so it's less about your giftedness as a public speaker and, and more about whether lives are being changed. And I just, it just made me think about in Scripture when God needs to, to communicate with Balaam in Numbers 22. There's no one else around, so God uses his donkey. His donkey speaks to Balaam and, delivers, and God uses, uses that. And I always take great comfort in that because I'm like, if God can use the donkey, God can use me. Okay, I mean, I, you know, I'm not beyond God using. He can speak through me. And so it's not about our giftedness because God can do, in, in our weakness, God's, God's perfection is seen. Like his, his power is seen in our weakness. So, so you might not be the, gift, the most gifted speaker, but God can still use you to change lives. And I believe that it's interesting because it doesn't say preaching here. It doesn't say able to preach, because there, the, there are words that they normally use uh, for that. This says teaching, right? And so I think, I think that this can be more than just public preaching. I think it could be teaching, counseling, Bible studies, small group leading. Like, like you, when you get involved in someone's life, people are changed by it. Uh, and I, th I think that's what it's getting at. And so the bottom line here is if you can't, if you can't, affect change if God, on a small level, then you're not going to affect change on a big level. Just because you're given a mic doesn't mean people will begin to listen to you if they weren't listening to you before, if you weren't changing lives before. And so before you think that this, well, this only applies to pastors, I don't think it does because we all have an obligation to teach. It's just that those that are exceptionally good at it might move on to, to, to teach the church. Because uh, Titus 2.3 says, Older women, likewise, are to, to, to be uh, reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So the, the older women are to teach. 
and so train the younger women. So the older women are supposed to be living exemplary lives and teaching the younger women. So all women, all older women have a mandate to be teaching younger women right there. So teaching is not just something for the pastor. Proverbs 6.22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a truth from Scripture I take hold of. I hold that tightly, right? That train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So father, mother, train up your child in the way he should go. You should be teaching and training your child. Matthew 28, 9 gives the church. The church, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There he goes, teaching them to observe all that. So the church as a whole has the mandate to go out and proclaim the gospel to the lost and teach the, uh, those that, that convert to, 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 to observe all that God has commanded us. So this morning, are you teaching your children? Are you, are you leading them in, in, both your, in both deed, in what you do, because they follow our example, and in, in word? Are you teaching them the word of God and leading them? What about younger Christians that you know? Are you being an example to them? Are you taking interest in them and, 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 and leading them, teaching them? And so that's the, that's, that's the giftedness that we're supposed to, that, that a, a pastor should be ex- exceptionally good at it. And then and he moves on to, 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 to teach the, the, the church. But every person should be striving to te- be teaching. So now the resume. The scripture gives three areas that, that we look for the resume of a potential pastor. And the first one is his home. Does he manage his house well? We see that in verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage the house, his own household, how will he care for the, God's church? More time is given on this topic than any other topic that, we, that we've covered. And I think that suggests that, that this is of greater importance. And it makes sense to me. Because in scripture, scripture describes the church as God's family, right? That we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We have been adopted into the family of God. Uh, God is now our father. And so as brothers and sisters, uh, we're a family. This is a family. And so if, if you can't manage a small family, why would God take you and put him in charge of his family? If, he, if, if, if a man cannot lead by example, resolve conflicts, foster love and, and, and unity, and shepherd the family to grow spiritually in his own home, why would we assume that he could do it in the church? So your life is the proving ground. It's, your, it's, your, it's not only just your proving ground, it's your training ground, right? I got to be honest, Angel and I sucked as parents with our first one or two. Like, they, got, they were like our guinea pigs. We had to find and figure stuff out, right? And, and it actually, we didn't realize how bad we were until a friend actually said, don't have any more kids, you're so bad at this. Like, and it woke us up. Like, it, 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 we got parenting books, and we're like, all right, we got to get busy. She's right. That was, it was a hard truth, but it was right. And so, and, and so we got into parenting books, and we, we, like, we, we like, we got to figure this out. But it took time. It took tension and focus. But it's, it's where, where it's a training ground. Parenting is a training ground. 
but it's also a proving ground. It's our resume. Later on in life, when our children are old, old enough to be able to see, the church should be able to look at our children and say, this, this, he's doing it well. He's doing it well. Not, no one's perfect. He's not doing it perfect. No one's perfect, but he's doing it well. And which, again, makes it really hard to hire a pastor from outside the church because we have no insight into their family. Um, so, which really brings the, 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 the point that we need to be raising up the next set of elders from within the church, that we know who they are. We've witnessed the growth in their life. We've seen them do well with their family. Jesus said in Luke 6.10, I'm 16.10, I'm sorry, Luke 16.10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So the church is looking for men that have done a great job at home. And God's like, you've, done, you've, done, you've been faithful in this little, I'm going to set you over more. And there's a word in here that I think is huge, hugely important. Because it says that you need to keep your children submissive. But it says with all dignity. And I think this is of the utmost importance. That dignity is meaning you're doing it in a way that is worthy of honor and respect, right? So you might have submissive children, but you may be doing it through manipulation, right? You're using their emotions and their fears and their uh, aspirations against them to get them to do what you want. Maybe you're using abusive force. I say abusive force because as, as, as a young child, you do parent a little bit by force. I mean, you're bigger than them. So your child is refusing to go to bed. You can literally pick them up and place them in their bed. Like you have that ability. But as you get older, you transition away from that type of authority into, the, in, into leading by influence, right? You've built the relationship with the children. They, they know you love them they know, and you, you, they trust you. And so they desire to have your input into things. That is where you want to get to, right? You make that, at some point, you got to make that transition. But there is a way that you, you could do this wrong and, and have submissive kids because you've beaten them into submission. And that is not okay. God is not okay with that. That is not a dignified, worthy honor of honor in a respectable way. And the other way you can lead is by, by, through, through, through your position only. Uh, a lot of times you might see this at, uh, in like a working environment more. But because you hold the position of authority, you dictate orders and expect them to be followed, rather than leading by influence and helping them get there and see why you've made those decisions, why it's, you, you know, like if you bring them along, they grow too. Yeah, they, they, they end up doing what you, you ask them to, but they also grow in the process. Dic just dictating orders by your, the fact that you are in a leadership position does not help them grow. It's not a dignified way of keeping your family submissive. God wants us to be honorable, in all that we do, parenting and managing our home in a dignified way. So how are you doing that? How are you doing at home? Do you lose your temper and yell more than you should? Do you too quickly resort to physical discipline? I'm not trying to say you shouldn't spank. Angela and I, we, we spank. Um, some people might not spank uh, you know, too, too, uh, enough, but uh, but in this case, are you, are you resorting to physical discipline too, too quickly? Are you manipula manipul manipulating their emotions in order to get them to do what you want? Instead, start leading them uh, 
God's way through influence, reading the scripture, teaching them the right, right and wrong, modeling for them what that looks like and helping them as they fail uh, to learn what they should have done. And so I, I also think, though, that this manage your own house well can also be applied to a, a single person. I, wouldn't, I don't think that they are, uh, cannot be a, a pastor because they don't have a resume, because that would exclude uh, couples that were unable to have children, you know, or a man that has the gift of singleness, because Paul actually says, I wish all people would be like me, right? And, and it's better because you can be solely focused on God, but when you get married, now you have divided attention. You also have to pay attention to your spouse. And he's like, so... So all the men that he was telling should stay single could not be pastors? Well, no. So, so being a, having a family is not a, a mandate to being a, a pastor. It's just the best place to look for that, that resume. Like, like how, how did you do? And so with, with a single guy uh, or, or a couple with no kids, I think you'd have to look elsewhere. Uh, are, are, are they, how are they doing in their, their circle of friends? Are they leading any small type of small group or Bible studies? Are they... Um, how they do at work? Are they in any type of position of leadership at work? And how are they doing there? You know, there's other places you can look uh, to, to see that, 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 that evidence. But I, do, I would say that I think it's a red flag, though, so, uh, if, if, if someone is single because they wanted to spend their life on them, for themselves. You know, they, they spent the last 10 years touring the world and just living for themselves instead of building a family. I, I think that would be a red flag. It's a case-by-case, case. but I don't think that it, it, it prevents anyone from being a pastor if you're single or married with no kids. The second place to look for a resume is not a recent convert. And what, the reason why I say it that way is because I really think that this is looking at um, kind of your testimony. Uh, in verse 6, it says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The de devil's sin that he was condemned for was pride, right? He was already in a position of leadership over the angels, and it wasn't enough. He wanted to be God. He, had, he got prideful. And, it, and so Paul's saying that a, a recent convert, a new convert, if you give, even if he's very gifted at speaking, if you give him the position of leadership too early, it could go to his head and he'd be puff him up with pride. Time is needed to test the genuineness of their faith, let them learn submissiveness and humility. Uh, give them time to practice applying scripture to their life and to their marriage and to work and to raising children. Every area of their life. They need time for that. I feel like there's pressure in America for young men to make the decision early to become a pastor. And then go, and then go, be, and then go to college for, for a few years. And I don't, and I, I don't see that in scripture. Like it, it, the word elder means an older, mature man. Um, not, and I don't think there's any, any hard age. I mean, T Timothy was, was a younger man. Um, most people think probably mid-30s, but something like that. But um, I'm not saying there's a hard age, per se. But, but encouraging someone to become a pastor right out of college, they haven't had a chance to prove, the, the, like, the, uh, to, to have their, the genuineness of their faith tested and, and had the practice of applying the scripture to their life and to their work and to their marriage. And, and there, would be none, there would be none of that. But at the same time, and the reason why, and another reason why I say that is because I've known very godly men in the church, older men. I'm like, why don't you be a pastor? And, and, and they're like, oh, you know, I, I've missed that, that, that ship sail. I, you know, that's for younger men. That's, you know, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a pastor. And, you know, like, because they had that viewpoint that that was something that they should have done when they were younger and going to college for. And so the idea of being a pastor now is just, is just out of the question, you know? And I don't, I don't 
That's, that's not what scripture says. I really think that every, every man in this room, young and old, should hold out, hold out the possibility that they might be called to be a pastor one day. You don't know. Maybe after 10, 15, 20 years of marriage and you've done really great at home and, and, you've, and you've learned how to lead well, then God, and then there's a need at the church for an elder and, and God just, you know, you just transition, right? Because you notice in here, nowhere is any formal type of education listed as a qualification. Nowhere does it say you must know Greek and Hebrew and, and Jewish uh, um, culture or anything like that. If that's not there. It says your character and the ability to apply scripture to your life and to lead others to do the same, that's the qualification. And so I, I want every man to hold that as a possibility. Not, they might not call you to. Just the same way as I really think every Christian in the room should hold out the possibility that God might call you to be a missionary. Keep that as a possibility. He might. In the same way for every man in the room. You don't know what the future holds. God might end up calling you to be an elder, a pastor one day. Might not be until you're 50, 60, older. I don't know. And I think recent convert is, is kind of a vague term on purpose because I think that would highly depend on your context. If you're a missionary in a country that has never had the gospel there and you've been there three years, well, the oldest, most mature guy is three years in the faith. But if you're here in the United States in an established church, then you've got guys walking with, with, the, God, with the Lord for 30 plus years. You know, so, so recent convert, I think that is, is in, I think it's vague on purpose. No, it's not a hard line. So part of your pastoral resume will be to show that you're not a recent convert, that there's been time for growth since you've given, you've given your life to, uh, to Christ. And I think, in other words, that that is your personal testimony, the sharing of your personal testimony. And finally, the last thing is, is that you are thought well of by outsiders. It's kind of weird that we give outsiders input in this decision. But Paul says we do. In verse 7, he says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snares of the devil. The outside world can disagree with what we preach, but they can still respect our devotion as someone who practices what we preach, as someone who's reliable and trustworthy. Our characters should speak volumes. And this thought of how the church is portrayed to the watching world comes up again and again in 1 Timothy. Basically, he's, he's telling us like, like, that our, the genuineness of our faith should be on display for the world to see. And, should, and we should be night and day different from these false teachers, right? The genuineness of our faith should be obvious to, to the watching world. And the, the pastor represents the church to the community. And if the community doesn't trust this guy, you're, you're going to have a hard time gaining traction as a church because the community doesn't trust your pastor, your leader. And so don't get me wrong, persecution will come, but it's going to come because you love Jesus. But some people are just being persecuted because they're jerks, right? Like, I, I and everyone knows these people. Like, sometimes there's, there's people, you just like, they call themselves a Christian, and you're like, please don't. You're giving all Christians a bad name. I just wish you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You know, I had two neighbors uh, back in the day, and and there was a limited parking, and they're always fighting over parking. I mean, they would get a little heated and ugly. One guy was a Christian, though. The other guy was not. And so I, one day I was talking to a non-Christian, trying to, you know, lead, you know, hopefully get him to church or whatever. And he's like, is that guy Christian? I'm like, yeah. He's like, is that guy a Christian? I want nothing to do with Christians. 
And he wasn't wrong. The guy was a jerk, right? So, so if the world, watching world thinks you're a jerk because you're a jerk, that, we got to take that into consideration. You got character flaws here. But if, they, but if they're making accusations, baseless accusations against you because of the love of Christ, that's a different story. But, we, but, they, but it comes into play. We must look at your reputation to the watching world. And so we see that, the, that there's a resume in three places. Your home and how well have you managed your own house. Your personal testimony, showing that you're not a recent convert. You've had time to grow in the faith, mature. And then your reputation in the community. That's, that's, the, that's your resume. That's where we look to, to, to see if you have these qualifications that have been listed, these character traits. And that's it. It's like, king, it's like when God chose the king of Israel and he looked for David, right? And, and, and all the other sons, to, to, to the watching world, the other sons would have been better kings. They were handsome and big and muscular. They're like, yeah, that guy would be a great king. But instead, God chose the youngest of them all, the little shepherd boy that nobody would have thought to pick as king because God knows the heart. It's about the heart and the character quality. And, God, and so that's what God's calling us to do is have a, a right heart with him before him, that our character would be good. And Paul spends a long time dealing with these character, the character of an elder because it's, more, it's, it's way more dangerous to get an elder that perfectly aligns with, with the doctrine that you want but fails in character. That's more dangerous than just to get somebody who is uh, fit in all the character qualities and maybe you disagree on a point or two of, of doctrine, but he's very teachable. You know, he can grow. There, like, there, there's some humility there. That's less dangerous. The character qualities are, because that's rigid. You, there, you can't, that's harder to change the character, quality, character, an unteachable person. What we want is someone like in, in Acts 18, someone like Apollos. Apollos was teachable. He had humility, right? So he's, he was a very gifted speaker, but he had only a partial gospel. So he was preaching only a partial gospel because he, he didn't have the whole thing yet. And so in Acts 18, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they, they, they sit down with him and say, hey, Apollos, you're, you're a great teacher, and what you're saying is partially true. You're, you're missing something. Let us fill you in the rest of the details. And he, and he was teachable. He, he accepted it. And that's what we want in a, in, a, in a pastor, someone who's teachable, has humility that it can be corrected. Because as a pastor, you, you, you model that for a church. If the pastor is prideful and hard, it will make a prideful and hard congregation. We model that. And so, I would say this, though. Th- this passage, as I write it, I mean, it's just hard. It's hard. Who, who, can, who can stand up against these, these qualifications? Like, it just... So I would, I, would, I would say this. Not to hold a pastor to an unrealistic expectation. He's still, he's still, he's still human. He's not perfect. He's going to make mistakes. What we're looking for is someone that's got humility. He's still, he's still learning, still teachable, correctable. Um, not going to be perfect. And so, and so there's two things, there's two ways that you can, you can error on this. Is one is to hold pastors to an absurd perfection, right? And I can see some people wanting to do this when they're in a, in a church where that pastor wields unhealthy authority, like absolute power. Well, in that case, he better be perfect if he's, if he's wielding that kind of power. 
But in a, in prop, in a proper setting where, where the, the pastor only has the delegated authority, don't hold him to an unrealistic, an unrealistic expectation of perfection. Because he's going to let you down. He's not perfect. But on the other side, is we, don't, we can't throw these out and say, well, if nobody's perfect, it doesn't really matter. We don't need to really hold him to this standard. We can't do that either. We've got to fight for this middle ground where we do hold our pastors to a higher standard. They must be walking uh, ahead of us. But we do so with a bit of grace because they're human. So here's a, summing up the takeaways here. The qualifications of an elder are vitally important to maintain the health, the unity of the church. We've got to be very careful that we put the right people in leadership. Um, second is that I really want if, if every man in this room to walk away with, with holding out the possibility of being a pastor one day in an open hand. Like not, that, not let that be something that, that well, that's for other people. Like not, just having, having that door closed. Because I really feel, think that that stops your growth. If, if you know that one day God might call you to be a pastor, well, then you might be, you know, looking at those qualifications being like, I, I probably should be working on some of these. But if you're like, well, that's for other people, and you, then, then you're, you're not even pursuing, like, growth. Third is that Paul in this painted a, a picture of, mature, of what a mature believer looks like. It's, it's, it's what we sh- our goal. It's what we should be striving after. And so every, everybody in this room, it, it applies to you. And so as you looked at that picture, do you see your reflection in it at all? Is it, does that look a little bit like you? Hopefully it does. Hopefully you can, start, so you can see some of your character qualities in that description. I'm hoping that's, that's you. But maybe there's areas you need to work on. That maybe as we read down through there, you, you kind of got hit with one of them. Like, oh, that one, that, one, that one hits at home. And if that's you, then, then take a moment to read up on that. You know, I, I don't know. Like, I'm just going to use one as an example. Maybe... Uh, um, respectable, right? Respectable. Maybe, maybe that one kind of hits you for whatever reason. Well, read up on it. Read what scripture has to say about respect, being respectable um, and, and work on it. But the last thing I want to leave you with, though, is that I don't want you to do this alone. This is not, as always, something that you do in your own power and strength. Uh, two of these character qualities are listed in the fruit of the Spirit. Um, in Galatians 5.22, says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those two, gentleness and self-control, are listed as a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of you, a fruit of the Spirit that you're indwelled with. And so as we, f- we work on this, it's, you're partnering with God. You're, it's in, you, you read your scripture, you pray with God. I, God, I am failing in this area. Help me in this. And the Holy Spirit will give you growth. Don't do this alone. That's not what I'm asking, we're asking you this morning. So let's pray. Lord, my God, that was a lot. That was a lot. And so I pray that it sticks with us, that something in there sticks with us. If not the whole thing, then maybe, maybe what that person needs will stick with them, Lord. Just, I pray that people would grow in this room through your words this morning. That we would take... Uh, the character that you expect from uh, a leader, serious, seriously, that we would we put into place elders that that um, are mature, are humble, uh, that that are a good example to the rest of us that we can follow after. 
And I pray that every one of us would be pursuing mature, uh, a mature faith, Lord, that we would be striving to have these character qualities, that the rest of the watching world would witness that there's something different going on in here, that there's a genuineness to our faith, and they want to be a part of it. And, I, and, I, and through that, Lord, I pray you would grow your kingdom here at Emmanuel. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me as we close our service with the doxology.